Designs for Health is proud to present Understanding Epigenetics and Methylation, an online webinar with Zelda Graham on Tuesday the 21st of May 2024 at 7pm Australian Eastern Standard Time. She'll be covering how to understand the steps of methylation, how to identify and manage patients with under and over methylation issues, what tests are useful to qualify patient symptom presentation, and how to set effective treatment goals with these patients. For more information and to register, please visit the designsforhealth.com.au website. Wellness by Designs. I'm your host, Andrew Whitfield-Cook. And joining us today is Dr. Maria Mackey, an integrative physician who will be giving us a medical perspective on the functional approach to women transitioning through the perimenopausal period and beyond. Welcome to Wellness by Designs, Maria. How are you? Hi, Andrew. I'm very well, thank you. It's great to be chatting with you once more. It's been so long in between visits, in between yeah. chats. Now, Maria, for our listeners, for our, those people watching, could you people could you take us through just a little bit of your history and background, please? Sure, Andrew. Um, so I'm a medically trained doctor. I graduated from medical school um, from the University of Otago in December of '93. So I'm coming up to nearly 30 years of having been a doctor. Um, I'm currently located here in Sydney, Australia. Um, I've practiced my whole time as a doctor here in Australia between Sydney and the Gold Coast where we happened to meet uh, as I was newly um, sort of uh, introduced to integrative medicine uh, and I think the thing for me has been trying to find a way to help my patients um, through whatever it is that they come to, to me. So there's my medical training on one side, and then I've done a lot of postgraduate training in integrative and functional medicine in between all of that time frame. Yeah. So take us through a little bit of that introduction to integrative medicine, because it's a big jump. It's a big hoop to jump through mm. when, you, you know, you're coming from that orthodox paradigm, isn't it? Very. So when I first started doing this, I was seeing teenagers with chronic fatigue um, on one side, and then I had uh, menopausal women that were flushing like mad on the other. And at that time, it was very difficult because all I knew was to prescribe, uh, you know, our traditional medical treatments. And, and that was, we're talking in the 90s in the early 2000s. Mm. So in those days, it was predominantly a pill-based hormone replacement therapy program. Um, at the time, I think compounding was still fairly in its infancy. And a lot of the time women were being prescribed trochets, which I had no idea about. So I had to hurry up, go off and start learning about, you know, what's going on. Because from a medical perspective, we have symptoms and then we have a medication. And then the medication does not, you know, fit all. It doesn't work for everyone. And this was pre-WHI, you know, before the big study that happened, which showed us the dangers of prolonged oral hormone replacement therapy. 
So it, it was yeah. an extreme of dealing with very tired youngsters, which I'd never been trained to deal with. And then on the other side, having women, you know, getting towards the end of their reproductive cycle with hot flushes, mood swings, um, and the whole gamut of what goes on with menopause. Was it a big challenge for you, though, to embrace in the integrative model? Or was it like, hell, you know, I'm not, this isn't working, so I'm open to anything? It was a transition. You know, it, it, it was initially very difficult to put aside my medical training to learn a new ethos. I'd started learning some traditional Chinese medicine before I got into any of this. And that really rang my bell because I was working in a hospital. I was learning about TCM principles and point location and how to acupuncture, you know, points. That yeah. time I found it very difficult to change gears. Hmm. Right. Okay. So on to our topic for the day, and that's perimenopausal, that perimenopausal period, forgive the pun. So can we go through some physiological changes, what's normal, what should happen, and what are you seeing in your patients? What's going wrong? Well, it starts um, in, as, as women, as girls, we don't have any, well, we do have hormone cycling, but reproductive hormones, it's all one bandwidth. And then you go through uh, puberty and then our cycles kick in. Now, from then, the ovaries have a set time frame upon which they're going to work and produce hormones. So the main function of our reproductive system as females is for us to make eggs, you know, conceive a baby, carry it, and then pop it out. And, and, and along the way, we have this cycle, cycle of changes that occur in our reproductive cycle. So by the time we get to our 40s, our ovaries are starting to get tired and they're not up to producing the same level of hormones as what they do. And so what you see is, is a hormone drift. This is gradual decline in hormone production across the board. And from that, we get a whole array of symptoms that appear for some women. For some women, they don't. Those are the women I don't see. Um, the women that have problems are the ones that I do see and I tend to work with. So there tends to be, or there's going to be this this population, which, as you say, you don't see. They're the women that mm. are quite well handled, either without any medical intervention whatsoever, or they're happy with the medical intervention. So looking back on your earlier days, mm -hmm. what percentage of women were happy with either none or medical intervention versus those that were really not well handled and were seeking alternatives? I think there's a bias because what happens is that those women that are happy, they're sailing along quite nicely and you only meet them yeah. as a, a, a by the by if something else happens mm. and they happen to be, you know, um, visiting for another reason. I spark up the conversation about periods, menopause, and those women, they would say to me invariably, oh, you know what? It's fine. No, I don't have any hot flushes. I'm sleeping well. I'm talking about women that are five to 10 to 15 years post-menopause. And then I learned to ask, what was your mum's menopause like? And then they would tell yeah. me, oh, my mum was fine. She had no problems. And that always got me. I was like, hang on, wait a minute. That's not common. What is it about those women that's okay? And then I get the others that come to me and it's like all hell's breaking loose because their hormones are starting to change. So they're out there. It's just my practice is biased because by default um, I'm going to get individuals that seek me out, you know, to help them resolve an issue. 
Yeah. And so what have you discovered with that mother-daughter genetics, intergenerational stress, behaviour? Like what are we talking about here? What's the main factors? It gets really fascinating. So um, one of the clinical observations that I made in women with premature menopause, so that's where their periods have stopped way ahead of their time. I'm talking in their, their 30s, you know, late 30s, or actually even early 30s, um, I learned to ask, what was your pregnancy like? Can you Have you asked your mum? Do you know what happened during that time frame? And they all tell me, hands down, oh, my mum's pregnancy was very, very challenged. Um, she was extremely tr- stressed. Um, and they, or something quite marked had happened. So, you know, I was quite intrigued by this, this um, sort of, impact of emotional stress on women that are pregnant and what happens you know with their babies and their outcomes and there have been studies done on this that look at maternal stress and fetal outcomes and but invariably my observations have been the more stressed the pregnancy the more stressed the bub if they're girls they can have problems with how their ovaries and adrenals and their hypothalamic pituitary access works it's an hpa ovarian access issue if, if right. that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And so obviously there's also the issue of, I mean, this is a whole nother podcast, really. It's a whole nother topic, but the issue of the drugs of the day that we used in pregnant women to handle um, symptoms, yeah. things like DES and diethyl still it wasn't them that had the issues, but their daughters. Mm-hmm. There's a whole tin of oh, worms to open absolutely. there. <laughs> but but you mentioned I've earlier had, hormonal I've had with that scenario, yeah. Oh, okay. So um, you mentioned hormonal drift. Can we discuss that? Yeah, sure. So um, with declining ovarian function, um, you get a drop in in progesterone production primarily. That that starts first, and it it can happen in the late 30s, early 40s. And with that can come a little um, insomnia, um, sleep disruption, Reproductive hormones have an impact on sleep patterns. Um, Estrogen does, progesterone does. And so there's a sort of increased sensitivity to stress when progesterone levels drop. Um, It stimulates uh, the GABA receptors in the brain. So it helps to relax us and also to help us just with sleep uh, latency so that we get a better quality sleep. So there's this increased sensitivity to stress, not sleeping so well, and then once estrogen levels start to drop, um, that can have an impact on mood and it can present with anxiety and or depression. And then, of course, we've got the, you know, the other issues. We've got maintenance of bone strength, skin, elasticity, mm. uh, vaginal dryness, da, da, da. Do you want to talk about what you so, mentioned first or do you want to go into the other? I'll issues? use an example. Um We're talking about perimenopause now. Perimenopause is a time around menopause. So menopause, by definition, is 12 months, no period. Uh, And so that perimenopausal time frame, we used to think could have been like 12, 24 months prior to um, their period stopping. We've now since realized that that onset can start as early as your like early 40s and can present with something as simple as uh, depression. Um, Mm -hmm. And once upon a time, well, actually, at present, the general management for mood changes where depression is clinically re- appropriate, relevant and diagnosed, um, antidepressant medication is often used. 
And one of the things that we've come to realize in mainstream is that that's not necessarily an appropriate treatment for a perimenopausal female. And she may benefit from hormonal supplementation. So that's been a huge change in the sort of the tonality of managing menopause in, in mainstream medicine. And it's being championed by the Australian Menopause Society at present. And we've got some really cool endocrinologists and um, gynecologists that are promoting the early recognition of um, early onset of uh, perimenopausal symptoms. And those perimenopausal symptoms are due to that hormone drift across the board you're getting this slightly decreased production. Ovaries have been popping out eggs every cycle. They're getting tired. They don't work as well as they used to. Um, and so that's what we're seeing. And, and you know, you're talking about um, an array of symptoms that can come. So predominantly with mood, that drop in estrogen leads to what we think is a drop in serotonin production. Estrogen helps to buffer serotonin production. Um, mm. And so if you don't produce as much, you don't make as much. And it can get really tough for these women, you know. Um, and what they're typically being offered is an SSRI or an SNRI to help them with that mood. Whereas judicious use of topical estrogen um, cyclically along with a progesterone, a synthetic and body identical progesterone, may be of better value for that particular person. Yeah. So it seems to me almost like um, that positive feedback uh, issue with pregnancy that, you know, when the placenta is engaged, when prostaglandin is is engaged to um, start the birth process, that it's a positive feedback cycle. Similarly, you were saying when estrogen is low, it, be, it causes lower estrogen. Is that correct? <laughs> Um, so what I'm talking about is ovarian reserve. We, we talk about the ovaries' capacity to produce eggs, but we also need to consider the ovaries' capacity to produce hormones. Um, so what happens is that with declining ovulation, so every cycle from menarche, from the time that a woman has begun her periods, there's a set number of eggs and a certain number are going to complete and ovulate and a certain number are going to undergo what we call attrition or they're going to get um, not recycled they're just absorbed mm. so we have a set number um, and for example progesterone we need to ovulate in order to produce progesterone so if in your 40s you start declining your estrogen production because your ovaries just can't produce the same amount um, and you're not ovulating as regularly you're not ovulating as regularly, you hmm. get a decline in progesterone production because it's produced by the sac that will pop the egg during uh, um, ovulation. Um, mm -hmm. And so you have what we call an anovulatory cycle or no progesterone. Uh, and that becomes increasingly common during your 40s. A woman at 40 produces about 20 to 25% testosterone is what she did in her 20s. So that's going to have an impact on libido, um, mm. drive. And I'm not just talking sex drive, I'm talking mental drive. Some women have male differentiated brains and they require a certain amount of testosterone to, to help drive their brain. And um, it's something that I see 
quite frequently. Um, so this that may is... present. Yeah. Sorry, that drop in testosterone may lead to a, a lowered or like absent libido, and that can cause problems in yeah. relationships. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And when you you were saying their drive as well, so not just sexual urges, but mental capacity. Is that what you're alluding Correct. to? Correct. Right. So yep. so that combined with the issue of pre, do I say that word, prescribing um, SSRIs or SNRIs, what what assessments can a doctor do, can anyone do, that would allude to an issue with hormonal drift earlier on, what should we be looking for? When should we be looking for these changes? So that's a really good question, Andrew. And there's no one definitive test in medicine. We're being discouraged from checking FSH and LH and doing hormone mm. panels. Oh. Um, I tend to do that. I, t I tend out of habit to do that because I'm curious. Um, yeah. some, of the, I, some of the gynecologists will look at an FSHLH and they can tell from where that, that um, patient is in their cycle whether or not they're starting to undergo perimenopause. And, and I think sort of general medicine, general practice is being dissuaded from doing that type of testing um, and for various reasons. However, I think if you're familiar in this area and you, you can look at the numbers and recognise what's appropriate for where a woman is meant to be in a cycle, you can call it pretty easily. You can match that symptomatology up with their age and with what their numbers are look, looking like um, and give them some guidance that way. I think it's an area that is going to undergo um, somewhat of a renovation in medicine and that hmm. a lot of doctors are getting trained how to recognise and help women that are going through that struggle and how to use these with or without testing. Yeah? So right. matching the clinical scenario and, and treating that, I think that's what's happening. Okay. But, okay. So, look, I, I understand the issue of healthcare costs, healthcare dollars, you know, can only go so mm. far. We wasted millions and millions of dollars on far too many vitamin D tests. I understand that. I can understand the restriction for that. I don't necessarily understand the restriction that was placed at the same time on B12 testing, but anyway. But but I, I get responsible restriction of testing, and I'll ask you this in a second because mm. it really puts you in a difficult position with over-testing in the face of Medicare. But when it's appropriate, when you can't really tell what's going on with the woman's hormonal cycle without mm. doing some sort of hormonal testing... And combine that with what you said earlier about women were just given SSRIs or antidepressants when they really should have been given a hormonal supplement or, or augmentation, if mm -hmm. you like. Where does that sit with responsible prescribing? It's sort of like... So the thing here is that um, if you can match that, that, that age group, that demographic... Um, yeah. And all everything lines up, and you think, okay, this is clearly a perimenopausal woman um, going to try some cyclical um, hormone therapy. This has been done before. This is not new. 
it's new to us, but it's not new. It's been done in Europe extensively. So many years ago, whilst doing some anti-aging training here in Australia, I was very fortunate enough to be in the audience and listen to a Belgian, a French Belgian doctor talk about cyclical hormone replacement therapy um, for women in their 40s. And at the time I thought, wow, this is really cool. Um, however, I, I found that my patients, that cohort of patients in their 40s, they found taking estrogen during their cycle, stopping it when they have a period and starting progesterone for the last 14 days of the cycle, they found that cumbersome. But I think what's happening is that there's a huge shift. We're talking now 10, 12 years later. There's a generational shift, and I think women are now wanting something that that resonates with their biorhythms. And so I think you're going to get better other, um, audience participation. <laughs> you know, I think they're more likely to try that treatment, cyclical progesterone. Uh, for example, when I sat my GP exams back in 2015, I was reading something around periods and cycles and and hormones and women in their 40s and in um, a Czech magazine which is what GPs read um, it advocated the use of oral myconized progesterone from day 14 to day 28 for women with PMS I nearly fell over because I was like why aren't doctors doing this and it just takes time for that um, uh, information that clinical importance to filter through. And I'm seeing more doctors doing this now. And the thing is, you can do this very, very easily without having done any tests. You just pick, you know, a shift in moods. Um, their PMS is getting worse. Their sleep, they're getting insomnia that week prior. You know, it's pattern recognition. You can do this without yeah. doing tests quite easily. Um, so there's this thing of testing, over-testing, um, and, and integrative and functional medicine, uh, whether you're a doctor or a naturopath, we're used to looking at numbers. We're used to weighing these things up. But I think it's really important also to look at the person in front of you and match the clinical scenarios always. with what you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. always. Um, thanks yeah. for taking us through that. It's just it's so important when, you know, we've got this spectre of um over assessing, wasting so many hundreds of dollars that yes. patient, you know, that this is patient's income that they could have used on treatment. And you can waste so much on testing that won't really get you anywhere. And it's got to be relevant testing. I'm all for testing if it's going to change your management. That's how I was trained in New Zealand. Um, it, was, it was that and don't prescribe antibiotics just for a flu. <laughs> <laughs> 30 years ago. I know it's funny. Yeah, um, yeah. But, you know, I think we need to be able to help the patients um, just from recognising those things in front of us. And, and I think the majority of practitioners do very well with that. I've certainly seen that um, with the early onset or use of herbs uh, for perimenopausal symptoms, you know, along that cluster, it would, you know, it's not just also mood changes. It can be early onset of hot flushes. You know, and 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 women are still having their period every 28, 30 days, or you know, whatever it is their cycle length is. Mm. Um, the 
brain fog that can come. <laughs> you know? So we go through our 40s, the hormones drift and they start to drift down and we see more and more of a clinical scenario of what happens sort of acutely pre, during or post menopause. Right. And so we get the mood changes, we get the hot flushes, we get the weight gain, we get that terrible insomnia, uh, the brain fog, you know, um, where they use that, whatchamacallit, <laughs> you can't find the right word to describe things. Yeah. Um, the physical changes like bone changes, they come down the line, you know, um, but they need to be considered most definitely when you're having a chat with a, a woman going gotcha. through these changes. Yeah. Right. And so two treatments, you were mentioning herbs before and the natural armamentarium of non-medically trained um, practitioners is to use herbs and nutrients and diet and lifestyle, things like that. Tell me about, tell us about what's your experience with efficacy versus bang for buck uh, and what choices are available to you as an integrative doctor? So we have a, an array of over-the-counter preps, which patients readily try, and they've usually tried most of them by the time they get to me. Um, and they invariably work for a period of time, and then they stop working. And they stop working because we get the the hormones, you know, a typical promensal um, or a, a herb that has, stimulates the estrogen receptors, for example. I find... Typically, they'll work for two years and then it stops. And so the patient will find they've, you know, got something that works really well. And then all of a sudden, those hot flushes start coming back again. So they go back to the pharmacy, they try another product, it works or doesn't work. And I find that the only sort of variety of herbs that tend to hold severe symptoms for a prolonged period of time, they honestly tend to be the Chinese herbs. And it's combination therapies that tend to work better for patients. So, and it's working on that energy interface. But I find invariably if they're using a single herbal treatment, it doesn't last for long. And that's because the hormone receptors get downregulated and the herbs can't attach anymore. So they lose their efficacy. Um, and in some cases, even the Chinese herbs don't work. And so we're like looking, well, we're looking at a completely, you know, looking more like at hormone therapy. Mm. Gotcha. I, um, I have seen with these uh, red clover extracts um, that they contain the precursors to the more active hormone derivatives. And so what I've experienced is I always ask them, I say, how are your guts? Mm -hmm. How have they been throughout your life? Have you had lots of issues? Now I get that most people are going to say mm. problem. And particularly as we get older, our guts take over conversations. I understand that. You, you spoke <laughs> about bias. I get that. But, but it certainly mm. uh, seems to me that these ladies have had ongoing issues. And I wonder, I've never looked at mm. this biochemically, I wonder if they might also be having an issue converting these precursors into the actives. Maybe their, you know, diversity isn't the right type or, you know, the bacteria species, whatever. That is a really good point. And I have not come across anything around that. Um, no, I've never. When I first got into treating postmenopausal women, so they already had... The, hot, the nasty hot flushes. Uh, that's when I lived in southeast Queensland. Uh, and those Queensland women are tough, you know, but they would come in just flushed 
red, the sweat dripping off them, you know, having these absolute awful power surges and extremely uncomfortable. And I was taught to do a six-week express detox on them from scratch. And they would come back six weeks later and they'd done their tests and they'd made some dietary changes and they'd go, oh, my God, Doc, your name was mud for the first two weeks, but now I could kiss you. I feel absolutely bloody brilliant. <laughs> you know, and the majority of their symptoms had gone and they felt like new women. So I, um, it, it, it was incredible to see just what cleaning up lifestyle factors did for the majority of these women you know um it amazed me and even now i try to get them to take the grog out take the caffeine out clean up their diet as much as possible and and it's an epiphany for those individuals that are game enough to do that as to what they're doing to themselves on a regular basis and what their body's been trying to tell them how does trying to take alcohol out of an Australian, particularly a southeast like Queensland woman, how does that work for you? Well, they've suffered enough by the time they've usually gotten to someone like me. So they're prepared to do anything. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I was going to ask a question there about those hot flushes. I, I appear, you know, again, have I really noticed this previously? The vernacular that we used two decades ago was that the the heat came from your boots and worked its way up. What I'm hearing now from women is that it comes from the inside out. Are we talking about a change in symptomatology or just a change in description? Is there any new player on the market? I'm thinking toxins here, adrenal stress sort of. I honestly think it's just a generational shift and a change in expression because I I think it was coming from the inside out anyway. Um, Right. It's just those individuals. I I know the the woman you're talking about because I've worked with them when I first got into the business. Um, I remember them fondly because, my gosh, they were straight shooters. They would just tell you, Doc, that sucks. (laughs) I I, I think it's just a, a... a shifting of the guard. I mean, for example, back in those days, you had to almost pry it out of them whether or not their libido had been affected. And it's even still now, I find women in their 60s, that conversation is uncomfortable compared to women in their 50s and then women in their 40s. They want it all out, you know, boots and all. They they want to hang it out on the line and they don't care who sees their knickers in terms of talking about libido. Um, yep. We could just talk about libido on its own and, and you know, the impact that has on a woman's health and relationships. There, there's a whole other conversation there with the disconnect between male and female libidos as to their hormone changes throughout the life. But anyway, um, with regards to the Chinese herbs that you use that you find most effective, mm-hmm. I know we can't talk about brands, I get it, but is there any formulae that you might be able to allude to? It tends to be those that use a combination of those old herbal formulations that that nourish the kidney yin deficiency. And and invariably, these individuals have a kidney qi deficiency. You know, it's yin and yang by the time um, they're getting the nasty hot flushes that they do. So it's those formulations that target that, uh, I think, do way better. Um, you know, back in the day, we used to think, oh, two to three herbs, we'll be right. Well, old Chinese herbal, herbal formulations didn't work that way. And I, I'm not a TCM no. practitioner. 
but this is just from years of observing and and, and the majority of them have like five to eight herbs and they're synergistic you know given together they're incredibly synergistic um and then but there are those patients for whom they don't even want to know about those or they don't work so we're looking more at um, using what we call body identical hormone replacement therapy that's the new terminology now hmm. Hmm. um so you mentioned uh, uh, earlier about looking Forgive me, let me rephrase that. You mentioned earlier about being aware and possibly treating earlier about the, the decline in the musculoskeletal system. When we're talking about things like um, sarcopenia, bone mass or bone density decreases, do you tend to use nutrients that can maintain uh, the skeleton and the joints? Do you tend to employ them earlier, like, you know, the collagens, the microcrystalline hydroxyapatite type calciums? Do you tend to use these earlier? Well, firstly, estrogen. For women, the anabolic steroid of choice is estradiol, not testosterone. Yep. It's testosterone for men, but estradiol for women. So trying to... Uh, mimic that any other way apart from using the hormone is very very difficult even with herbs I, estradiol is a wonderful hormone for women it helps to keep your skin looking young and dewy it helps to maintain serotonin levels it actually helps us to maintain sensitivity to insulin it's one of the reasons why as we go through our 40s in particular if you go through menopause or just after you can get this thickening around the middle with women and that's predominantly due to, uh, well, two things. One, a drop in estradiol, um, because it gives you that curve, that ooh-la-la, and then a drop in growth hormone production. So we start decreasing growth hormone production from our early 30s onwards. By the time we hit our mid-50s, we don't have much in the way of growth hormone. Growth hormone uh, enables us to have a six-pack after, you know, doing abs for like two to three weeks in our 20s. Whereas for um, women in their 50s onwards, we know that just, you know, achieving a two-pack instead of a one-pack is a bonus, let alone getting our waistline in. You have to work really hard to get, you know, to try and make up for that hormone shift or, or, you know, deficiency that occurs with estradiol just in relationship. And so, you know, if it has that impact on insulin sensitivity, it alters metabolism. So it's like women go, you know what? I can't eat like I used to. My shape's changed. My muscle mass, I don't have as much muscle as I used to. That's all estradiol, you know. Um, so I've become an advocate of using estradiol for women where it's appropriate, where it's appropriate. Yeah. And just a quick question about the appropriate dosing. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. if we're talking about individual women requiring individual or having individual needs, do you see any issues with this, you know, one-size-fits-all body identical hormone replacement therapy, too high for some, too low for other women? Um, invariably, a, a woman's um, response to the treatment is, is ultimately our gauge. We don't necessarily monitor or advocate the using of monitoring blood levels. Those studies have been done by the companies that have produced um, the hormones. And so... Right. 
For example, if I'm using a topical estrogen patch, so topical estrogen has been deemed safe for women that don't have a contraindication, um, and it's main is mainly used or its leading use is is for treatment of hot flushes, so vasomotor changes. Um, and so invariably, we try to titrate the estradiol level to match the intensity of that woman's symptoms. Now, if a woman is sensitive to it, then she'll get breast sensitivity if she has too much. So we've got to, or if we use too much, it can cause um, a sort of periods and we don't want to have too high of hormone levels so that a woman is starting to cycle through and get periods again. So it's, it's just, it's treating a fine line where you're giving enough hormones in those, those latter years to meet their physiological needs and to gain benefit from it without tipping them into symptomatology. And, and you can do that quite safely without testing, needing to do blood tests. It's not encouraged and I certainly, I don't do it. I don't encourage using it either. And, and sorry, so, I, I, so I was... the thing is, yeah. if, I've just got to say that if we use topical estrogen and a woman has her uterus intact, she, say she hasn't had a hysterectomy, then we have to give progesterone to offset yes. the risk of unopposed estrogen. So, so um, those two treatments go together. I like to give progesterone because it helps to calm the brain down and, and it helps with, you know, maintaining good sleep hygiene. Mm. And I'm talking hygiene in the context of quality here. Mm. And so when we're giving estrogen and not testosterone, mm -hmm. do you employ the use of certain micronutrients like, you know, the classic one is zinc B6 magnesium to help run the hydroxylases when you're talking about conversion from the, let's say, higher hormones to the lower hormones, um, like, for instance, testosterone? Do you, do you use those? So my way of um, – so you're talking about using supplements as an adjunct for uh, – so it sounds like you're trying to uh, – Enzyme conversion. So from, enzyme let's conversion. say, pregnenolone to progesterone, estrogen down the flow to testosterone, et cetera. Well, when we were using body-identical hormone therapy, you don't need – um, cofactors per se, because you're just giving the real thing. You're just giving them right at that end point. Uh, you would use those nutrient therapies if you're trying to improve um, sort of neurotransmitter balancing and cascades, gotcha. so brain hormone balancing. Um, if you're trying to work with detox, general detox, there's some you know great you know things you can use. Amino acids. I'm a big fan of using amino acid therapy and judicial use of okay. vitamins and minerals in the mix um, to try and help balance out those phase one, phase two detox pathways. There's some great, you know, um, powders or products available that can help with that. Oh. Um, this but this is another we, podcast we, for us. <laughs> <laughs> but we're trying to give enough hormones that you're not stressing the pathways. You're just meeting their needs. We're not, we're not going to mimic the entire hormone production that a woman used to produce and would need full capacity detox pathways to handle. We're just trying to give enough to have a physiological effect in calming um, hot flushes. And to some degree, some women can get improved cognition with estradiol. You know, I have okay. had that occur where some of the word finding issues are thought to be um, estradiol related. So I listened to a, a podcast um, a very, very informative endocrinologist from Melbourne who talked about 
how they were looking at estradiol being implicated um, or lack of it in postmenopausal post women as an increased risk for Alzheimer's. And they, the analogy used is that once your estradiol levels drop, your brain cells um, can't take glucose up as efficiently as they used to. And that drop off is by as much as 25% for some women. And that's what they think um, contributes to word finding issues, or word association issues. So they, they called it the whatchamacallit syndrome. Um, wow. And so I found that really fascinating because for some women, once I guess start the estradiol, um, the body identical estradiol, not, and, and I'm not talking about just treating hot flushes here, but the brain function improves. Of course, I use other um, sort of nutrient therapies to augment that, um, to try and sharpen up how their brain is working. But for some women, it's been an absolute game changer for them. Mm. Do, do you know, like it's it's almost a, a wake-up call for me about instead of treating things that we are aware of, forgive me, that just fell out, um, instead of treating things that we see in front of us, for instance, like um, insulin resistance, pre-diabetes, and you'll see, mm. as you mentioned before, the weight gain, the loss of the abs turning into one ab, and we we look at weight gain or weight control, man, um, appetite mm -hmm. suppression, possibly metabolism, sugar metabolism, and perhaps we should be looking way earlier down the track to hormones, um, the sex hormones, to help how the how the mm. cells are going to be responding to insulin and glucose, things like that. 100%. I'll go back to testosterone because I think I've talked about estradiol enough. Um, testosterone helps with sex drive. So it helps with um, what happens in women oh, is that once their hormones drift, um, you get shrinkage of, of the arousal tissue and, and it loses its volume. You need um, testosterone to help reignite the fire, right? to help from a libido perspective, and it helps with um, in making it easier to orgasm. But you also need estradiol to improve vascularity to that arousal yeah. tissue in a female. So you need a bit of both, you know. Estradiol enables us to blush. And, and so you need engorgement of the arousal tissue in order for it to work properly. So um, women will say, look, I'll ask them, how's your libido? And they'll go, zero, nothing, no interest whatsoever. And I'm, I'm like, well, how long has that been going on for? And the answer is going to be two to five years. And their hormones started drifting or dropping off anywhere up to two to five years prior to that point before you saw a structural shift. And so if they're seeing me at 50 or 48, they got no libido. I'll go backwards and go, when did you last have one? And then I count back two to five years and I'll ask them what happened around that time frame. So for a woman, if you draw a rectangle, 25% and you cut it in half, 50% of their testosterone production is produced from fat. 25% by ovaries, 25% from adrenals. So when I'm, I'm, I'm teaching my, my clients, I'm, I'm talking to them about where their hormones what's going to babysit them through their time of change. Invariably, it's the adrenals. If, if you've lived a very stressful life, um, which 
hey, you know what? This is modern day living in Australia and we all have our stresses and we get compressed with stress. Our adrenals cop it left, right and centre. And if they're not nurtured and looked after, your latter years can be a very, very difficult time from a hormone perspective because normally they would produce the hormones that would take us through smoothly from menopause into postmenopause. Now, that's happening less and less. I, I think we're all, you know, getting affected. And I'm just talking about women here. Men are another kettle of fish. Um, and, and so, you know, testosterone helps us to be decisive. Women that are testosterone insufficient dither. They vacillate. They have difficulties making their minds up. They're the sort of patients where I'll be talking to them about the results and we come to the end and I've recommended a, you know, a number of treatments and, and one of them may be testosterone in that package. And they'll say to me, doctor, do you really think I need testosterone? And I look at them and I'm going, I'm thinking to myself, wow. <laughs> if ever I could find someone who needed testosterone the most, it's going to be that woman in front of me. And so I try to find a way to translate that in a nice way. So invariably I'll say, all you have to lose is indecision. And it's that stop and think for a while. Okay, are you sure? I'm going, yes, take the testosterone, please. <laughs> oh, Do wow. the test in six months, six weeks' time. Come back and let's have a chat. <laughs> indecision about indecision. That's a, that's a whole other conundrum. Unbelievable. So, and, 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 yeah, sorry, but they are so the I was ones just that I say, to myself. Oof. Mm. Dr. Maria Mackey, there's there's so many different aspects here. There's so much more that we can talk about. Unfortunately, we've run out of time, but I, I can't thank you enough for taking us through your care of patients, what you've learned over the years since I've known you, the decades. And I gotta say, it's it's there's something going on with you because you haven't changed one iota. Um, oh, you're gosh. doing something right. So obviously you're walking your talk, but well done to you and well done for your care of so many women and indeed men and couples throughout your, your time being an integrative doctor. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you very much. And thank you, everyone, for joining us. Remember, all of the show notes and the other podcasts can be found at the Designs for Health website. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. This is Wellness by Designs. 